Bibles this morning to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. We are continuing in our study of the Heidelberg Catechism. And if you once you get to Exodus 20, if you would put your finger in that and then open uh, to the back of the hymnal to page 889. You'll find there question and answer 94 and 95. I will ask you the question and ask that you respond with the answer, which has to do with the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. So, and then we'll read uh, Exodus. So what does the Lord require in the first commandment? That I... And what is idolatry? Very good. And then if you would just turn to Exodus 20, we'll read uh, just the first three verses. This is the word of God. And God spoke all these words, saying... I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Three points to the sermon this morning, which I have entitled God First. Uh, The requirement of the first commandment, the reason for the first commandment, and your response to the first commandment. So the requirement, the reason, and the response. We left off last week by noting uh, that uh, we are called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that is not uh, an unattainable uh, ideal, uh, as many of us think of it. And when we think of it in that way, we tend to uh, excuse ourselves for not aspiring to hit uh, that goal. And I exhorted you not to be cruise control Christians, uh, but rather to be race car Christians uh, in obeying that. And I want to follow up on that this morning uh, by looking at this first commandment and its requirement more specifically. Certainly, the most profound question in all of Scripture is the one asked by Jesus of Peter subsequent to Christ's resurrection from the grave uh, in John chapter 21. And if you recall that particular portion of scripture, you'll know that the question which Jesus asked Peter is, do you love me? Do you love me? And I ask you that question this morning. Do you love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? It is what the first commandment requires. You shall have nothing, no one, before God. It brings you right to the heart of what that first commandment requires, as we read about in the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, And uh, it 
continues what we looked at last week in concluding last week's sermon with the first and great commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I submit to you that right here is a barometer of your spiritual health. Do you love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Use that as a barometer or a test of your own spiritual health. Right here, uh, as well, is the key to fulfilling the first table of the law. You'll remember last week our catechism lesson asked, how are the commandments divided into two tables? The first has four commandments teaching us how we should live in relationship to God. The first commandment teaches us who we are to worship. The second commandment teaches us how we are to worship. We're not to worship by pictures or by idols. Uh, If you're using Jesus in your private devotions, you're breaking the second commandment. Pictures of Jesus, all right? Uh, You're not to worship by idols or by pictures. The third commandment uh, has to do with the attitude of worship, uh, the heart attitude of worship. And the fourth uh, commandment has to do with the time of worship. One day out of seven belongs to the Lord, the Lord's day. Suffice it to say, we could summarize that by saying nothing and no one is to come before God. God first. And I would upbraid myself uh, as your pastor, as your preacher, for not sufficiently and perhaps uh, uh, adequately reminding you enough and reminding you often enough that God comes first. It is perhaps the most important thing for any Christian is uh, to uh, have that. And uh, a question was asked in a poll, are you faithful to the first commandment? Just out on the street. 76% of respondents said yes. Imagine that. Yeah, you're right. The question, are you faithful to the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, assumes people are able to identify idols in their lives, while the answer, 76% say yes, reveals that they cannot identify idols in their own lives. Idols such as pleasure, sex, money, yourself, all right, your time, uh, any of those things are subsequent to your devotion to God. God comes first. God comes first in your time. God comes first in your wallet. God comes first in your uh, heart. God comes first in your behavior. God first, God first, God first. Murphy say it more often, more frequently. All right? So, coming back to our original question, do you love the Lord your God? with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Almost every spiritual problem in the Christian life can be traced back to your answer to this question. Think of Revelation, where Jesus comes and speaks to the churches of Asia, all right? Uh, You may or may not be familiar with that. Think of the church in Ephesus, Revelation chapter 2. We read this, Jesus speaking, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, (coughs) and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, (coughs) and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. 
But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Here was a church that had worked hard. Here was a church that had kept their hopes alive. Here was a church that was doctrinally sound, patiently enduring suffering, and yet they are on the razor's edge of losing the light of Christ and their witness in the world. Why? Because, as Jesus said, they have abandoned the love they had at first. The preeminent purpose, the preeminent before anything and anyone comes the Lord and your love for him. Think of Laodicea a little bit later in chapter 3. We read the same thing there, uh, chapter 3, uh, verse 15 and following. He says, I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. But because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. I find this an astounding passage. What could be worse than to be cold towards the Lord? To be spiritually numb. To be spiritually oblivious to the Lord. Jesus says what's worse is to be lukewarm. To be lukewarm. It makes Jesus sick. It causes him to vomit. The text cleans it up a little bit for us, as it often sanitizes the language. Lukewarmness in one's love for God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do you love the Lord is the question. That is what's required in the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Does God come first in your life? Does God come first in your time? How do you start your day? How do you spend your day? How do you spend your Lord's day? Does God come first in your money? God doesn't want a tip. He wants a tithe. When do you tithe? First. First. Not after you paid all the bills. Not after all the bills are paid and you say, oh, let me see how much I got left. How much discretionary income can I provide in the offering this week? First. It's very interesting. I just want to mention this because it's come up so often in my pastoral ministry. <clears throat> How many times people come to me and, and are having trouble with their finances, having trouble meeting uh, their bills or making ends meet? And I won't take the time this morning, but I often turn to the minor prophets where God comes to his people and says, you work, you're working twice as hard and yet you have nothing to show for it. You, you store your money away and it's like a bag with holes in it. It just goes away. Because you've neglected me. In Malachi, God actually... Look, look, let me put it this way. Everywhere in the Bible, God says you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. 
You get to Malachi, God says, test me in this. Bring the tithe into the storehouse. If you're not doing that, not my words, not your pastor's words, not my particular theological inclination, God's words in Malachi, you're robbing God. But God provides an incentive. He says, test me in this and see if I do not open the windows of heaven and bless your face off. God first. God first. Do you love the Lord your God? It's what the first requires. What's the reason? Well, look at the text if you're open to Exodus chapter 20. The reason is in verse 2. We've considered this previously. It's the preface to the Ten Commandments when I demonstrated to you that the law is given in a context of grace. Look at verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The law is given in a context of grace. God in the preface in verse 2 declares who he is. He is a personal, relational God. I am your God. You are my people. All right. And I brought you out of bondage, out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. What's the reason for keeping any of the commandments, but most particularly the first commandment, that you should love God more than anyone or anything? It's simply this. He has loved you. He has loved you. God so loved the world, God so loved his people, God so loved his church that he purchased his church with the precious blood of his own son, Jesus Christ. He loved you. That's why he requires loyalty, fidelity to him. Some of you have heard this before, but repetition is the teacher's friend as I've learned from Eddie Urban, so I'm going to do it again. In Ezekiel, don't turn there, but in Ezekiel chapter 16, we have a picture that Ezekiel portrays for us of God finding Israel uh, in blood and then cleaning her up and then marrying her and bedecking her with jewels and one thing or the other. So we have this picture of God marrying his people, Israel. The question is, where did that happen? Where did God marry Israel? I submit to you that what we have for us in Exodus right here is a wedding ceremony. God married Israel at Sinai. And what we have, and, and maybe Mike DeZigo or Scott Schwartz or some of our Jewish Christian uh, brothers uh, may be familiar with the Jewish wedding ceremony, but what you have portrayed here is a Jewish wedding ceremony in Exodus. It's a picture. Now, I want you to think about that, all right? Because when you understand what's going on here, this isn't just a matter of God standing before his people on Mount Sinai and shouting forth commandments as if he's some tyrannical dictator and saying, do this! He's a husband that's engaging his bride and loving his bride. Look with me, if you will. Look at Exodus, all right? 
This is a wedding service. Remember, the Bible is primarily a domestic document. All right? Why do I say that? Because you theologues will know that a lot of people look at Exodus and they say, what you have here is a suzerainty treaty. They look at, they go to the ancient Near East, ancient Near Eastern studies, primarily at Yale University Graduate School, all right? And they look at these ancient Near Eastern treaties and they say, oh, suzerainty treaties. All the elements of a suzerainty treaty are here when God makes a covenant with Israel. Well, there are hermeneutical problems with that. We're not supposed to go outside the Bible to interpret what's inside the Bible. We look at what's inside the Bible and then interpret what's outside, all right? So there's a hermeneutical problem with that. But there's also a theological problem. It's cold. It's detached. It's dispassionate. God, the suzerain, lays down the law for his subjects. No, it's God, the husband, marrying his bride. Look with me, if you will. Let me point this out, all right? Look, chapter 19, verse 3 and 4. We have the invitation to the wedding. Moses went up to God. The Lord called him out of the mountain. Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Here's the invitation to this uh, ceremony. And note what said. This is what I've done for you. This is, this is who I am, just like is repeated in the preface. Then look at verses 10 and following. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments. Here's preparation for the ceremony. Just like any wedding, like we recently had when Joshua and Taylor got, got married up in New Hampshire. So many of us were there, right? How much time is spent by the bride getting ready for the ceremony, by the groom getting ready for the ceremony? Here's the preparation for the ceremony. Verse 11, and be ready for the third day, for on the third day the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up to the mountain and touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall, uh, but he shall be stoned or shot with a beast or man he shall not live when the trumpet sounds a long blast they shall come up to the mountain so Moses went down to the people and consecrated them and they washed their garments then look at uh, verse 17 here comes the bride then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain and then look at um, look at uh, verse 20 here comes the groom the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And then you get to Exodus 20. This is the marriage contract. This is the marriage contact contract. Mike, Mike, does he go? You've been to a Jewish wedding, right? Yep, they have the kupa, hupa, right? Right? Look at verse 18. There's the kupa. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke before, because the Lord had descended to it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And then you get to chapter 20, and here's the marriage contract. The Ten Commandments are the marriage contract between God the husband and Israel his bride, his people. And Exodus 20 through 24 are theologically known as the Book of the Covenant, which is the marriage contract. Turn over to chapter 24. Verse 3, the ceremony comes to a, a, conclu a, a, a high point here. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, Exodus 20 through 24. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all, that the words, uh, all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. 
Here's the bride saying, I do. I do. Then look at verse 7. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. And we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. The blood of Jesus Christ is what has sealed the relationship between Christ, the groom, and the church, his people. The blood of the covenant, the marriage contract is signed in blood. And then look at verse 11. Uh, Sorry, verse 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment. So Moses uh, rose with Joshua and went up into the mountain. And uh, then they uh, had a wedding feast. They had a wedding feast, just like most weddings have a wedding feast. Then verse 15, Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. If I could say this respectfully, the relationship is consummated here. Now, you get to chapter 25, until the end of the book of Exodus, most people neglect this, right? Because the big story is in Exodus 1 through 20, right? The redemption, the Passover, giving of the law, one thing of that. But what's the rest of the book of Exodus about? It's building the tabernacle. And what's the tabernacle? It's the honeymoon cottage that God will spend with his bride his people, the first house that they share together. Why is this important? One, I think if we look at the Bible as a Jewish book, we wouldn't be looking to Babylonian books to try to understand it. One. Two, I submit to you that this will if you, if you get this, this will radically change how you look at God's law. This is why God's commands are not burdensome. It's a bride expressing love for her husband. This is why it will, it, it will change your perspective on everything in the commandments. Right? Obviously, the first commandment is our focus this morning. Second commandment, how you worship. Ask any husband what he would rather have, a picture of his wife or his wife in the flesh. Right? Yeah, it's laughable, right? Of course, you want your wife, right? Well, why would we worship God by pictures? Third commandment, the attitude of worship, right? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. We wear God's name before a world. We are Christians. God, in Numbers chapter 6, the Aaronic benediction, which we pronounce here every Sunday right after second service, You realize immediately following the pronouncement of the Aaronic benediction, God says, and so he placed his name on them and blessed them. We wear the name of our groom. We are married. It's just like a bride. She comes down the aisle, Miss so-and-so. She goes up the aisle, Mrs. 
the last name of her husband. She takes the name of her husband. We've taken the name of our husband. We are Christians. The fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. How many times I've encouraged people when they've come to me and said, I'm struggling with my devotional life. I'm so far behind in my Bible reading. God has given you one day a week where you're to enjoy him. Spend Sunday afternoon with your husband. Spend Sunday afternoon with him. And catch up, refresh, renew yourself. Ah, Tempest Fugits. Look, look at Psalm 63, if you would. Psalm 63. I want you to look at this. What's the requirement to the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. When you have no other gods before God, what does God say? He says, you'll have me. You'll have me. Look at Psalm 63. A Psalm of David. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands, posture of worship. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help in the shadow of your wings. I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. When you have no other gods before God, when you put God first, you have him. You have him in all his glory. You have him in all the riches of his beauty. You have him. And this is what David extols in. Uh, Coming rapidly to a conclusion here. What about a response? What should be your response? Lord, Help us all to internalize this. What should be your response? One, learn to say I love you to God. Psalm 18, another Psalm of David. It's instructive in this regard. Psalm 18, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Learn to say to God, I love you. He's your husband. He's yours. You're his. Secondly, learn the Ten Commandments. I mentioned to you last week, 85% of professing Christians cannot name the Ten Commandments nor the two places in the Bible where they're to be found. And then we wonder, why is the church so weak, so flabby, so, so flaccid, so, so impotent? Why is the church so no, no different than the world? We don't even know what our husband requires of his bride. And we go whoring after all other things. Third, 
Sing love songs to God. Sing love songs to God. Get out your hymnal or get out the app, right? If you don't have money for the app, see the deacons. They'll pay for it so you have it. You got the music. You got the words right there. Here, some songs. My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. For thee all the follies of sin I resign. What a beautiful love song of devotion to the Lord. Or, fairest Lord Jesus, sing love songs to him. Jesus, the very thought of thee, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, sing these to yourself. Sing them. I take that back. Sing them together, but sing them privately. It's actually quite an enriching experience. Because then you don't have to worry about what everybody's thinking about how you sing, right? We get to church, we're singing, it's like, oh, I sound like a broken belt. I don't want anybody to hear me singing. Well, but when you're alone, it's like only the Lord hears you. Make your joyful noise. But sing your love for him. And then lastly... Reflect. Reflect on the question with which we began. The question which Jesus poses to every would-be disciple. Do you love me? Do you? Who or what is your God? Who or what is your authority? Who or what is the center of your life? Do you love me? Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we do love you. And yet we find our hearts are prone to wander and leave the one we love. We find ourselves in the position of, so often, Laodicea, Ephesus. We can only ask that you would come in the person and power of the Holy Spirit to fan into a flame that ember of devotion which we have for you. Instill in us the depth and the breadth and the height of the love of Christ which passes all understanding and fan that into a flame of passion for you. And may you delight in us as we glorify and enjoy you. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen and amen.